Hi, I'm your host, Rowan Tonkin, and welcome to Being Planful, the show for FP&A leaders and planning experts. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Being Planful. My name's Rowan Tonkin and I'm your host. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Dan Eyre. Dan is the uh, CEO and founder of Blockchange. Welcome, Dan. Thanks so much for having me, Rowan. So, Dan, uh, Blockchain, uh, obviously an interesting name, uh, obviously something to do with the blockchain. Uh, why don't you tell us what Blockchain does and uh, a little bit more about yourself? Sure, happy to do that. Um, you know, blockchain is digital investment platform. Uh, and so we focus on very specific digital assets. And that's kind of where the name comes from. Uh, there is, an, uh, you know, we're kind of alluding to blockchain, the technology. Uh, but, you know, the digital asset ecosystem is totally independent today of traditional assets. So when you're buying stocks and bonds and, and other assets on the traditional side, uh, you're doing that through infrastructure that's been around for, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, maybe beyond in some cases. Uh, and this new age or this new paradigm of digital infrastructure requires its own platforms uh, to, to really facilitate the same experience or in many cases, a better experience. Uh, and all of that is being built today. And we're kind of on the forefront of that. Uh, we build solutions for fiduciaries, uh, advisors, uh, asset managers, family offices, other types of firms that are looking to purchase these assets and manage them on behalf of their clients. Awesome. Well, that sounds super exciting. And one of the the, the major premise uh, for, for me asking you on the show, uh, Dan and I used to work together at another planning company and, and Dan uh, was our expert supply chain. And, and he's obviously moved on to some really interesting things. And as we think about um, as we think about FPNA specifically and planning, we're hearing a lot of, about uh, organizations now wanting to hold cryptocurrencies, for example, the things that your platform allows people to, to buy, sell and trade and manage. Uh, uh, how do, how do we, what, so first question, why would uh, an organization want to hold cryptocurrency on their books? Yes, you know, it boils down to the investment thesis of Bitcoin or more broadly speaking, crypto, because it's not just about Bitcoin today, uh, but, the investment thesis that's most prevalent today uh, for corporate treasuries and why they would hold it on their balance sheet is because they're seeing it as a hedge against inflation, right? They're looking at this, you know, monetary policy from governments around the world. It's not just in the United States. I mean, it's a pretty ubiquitous problem uh, that the money supply, uh, you know, in terms of supply and demand uh, and, and as it relates to the, the potential for massive inflation, you know, it's, it's not favorable. Right. You're, you're seeing a lot of additional money supply. I think it was, you know, 20 to, to 30 percent of the total money supply increased by over 30 percent since the start of the pandemic. I mean, that's it's going to have profound implications. And, and I don't think it's a you know, it's not a secret to anybody. Um, but the fact that there are alternatives historically, gold has been a, an alternative that, uh, you know, treasuries and asset managers and fiduciaries have flocked to in cases where uh, higher than normal inflation is expected. Uh, but, you know, 
the the as, there's some aspects of gold uh, that make it, you know, I, I would say a little bit less desirable. Um, mainly, you can't pay for anything with gold, right? You can't say, I want to, you know, I'll trade you 10 gold bars for that. Nobody's going to be carting around 10 gold bars to pay for anything. Uh, but it, it does hold its value very well. Uh, the, the unique thing about Bitcoin and other crypto is that uh, it's easily portable from one party to another party. So just as easily as you could send someone a, a transaction on Venmo, uh, you're able to send value through crypto networks uh, very, very securely. In fact, it's, it's the most secure database in the world, at least Bitcoin is at this point. Uh, but it retains or is shown that it has these characteristics of retaining uh, this use case of store of value, you know, unit of account, it really a, a currency kind of sort of combined with uh, that store of value thesis that gold historically has had. Uh, and that's made it very, very attractive, especially for companies that are tech forward, is that they can invest in these things. They're in from a value perspective, they continue rising against the dollar. I mean, Bitcoin's uh, history, just Bitcoin alone, we could talk about other assets as well. But Bitcoin has, you know, the return, I think, somewhere around 90,000% over its lifetime, uh, you know, since, since it started to be measured. Uh, it's very transparent as well. So very auditable of, of, you know, it's a misnomer that it's this anonymous thing. It's not anonymous. Everything is published on this ledger. It's very clear who owns what, especially if they've been through the, the KYC process, which is, for those that don't know, is, is know your customer, uh, which entities go through that process when they acquire uh, these assets. Uh, but it's just, it's something you can put on your balance sheet that is uh, hedging against those, those issues as it relates to monetary policy. And that's what you see with the likes of Tesla and MicroStrategy and, and, mm -hmm. and others. And, and so for those companies that are um, making that that hedge, uh, but we've seen lots of volatility with something like the price of Bitcoin recently, right? How does that impact them from, uh, you know, someone like MicroStrategy is holding a lot of Bitcoin, right? What's the impact for those organizations as they're holding uh, that, that asset class? Yeah, and this one's kind of interesting because a lot of the... Um, current accounting rules and regulation had no concept of something like crypto before it came along, right? So there are different schools of thought, I think, um, that are out there. And certainly rules are different between geographies and economies. Uh, we don't have the same rules here that they have in Europe versus Asia. Uh, and, and then, you know, sort of the, the even more localized rules are present uh, across various countries or, or um, uh, you know, sort of groups of nations. But uh, in the U.S., Crypto is accounted for as an intangible asset. Um, so it's, you could think of it similarly to how you would account for like a trademark or a patent. Uh, and the value is recorded at the cost basis at the time that you purchase the crypto, the Bitcoin, whatever. Uh, and the value doesn't rise until there's a taxable event, right? So when a taxable event occurs, let's say it rise, you know, price rises uh, and you sell it, okay, there's a taxable event there, but the value on your books doesn't rise uh, you know, accordingly during that period until that taxable event uh, where there's a, a capital gain. But kind of oddly here, if the value drops, the price of Bitcoin goes down, even if there isn't any taxable event, you need to write down an impairment charge against the, the assets that are on your books uh, and to reflect that, that drop in market value, uh, which is, you know, 
it's not great, right? For a microstrategy who holds an enormous amount of Bitcoin uh, or even for Tesla. I mean, I think Tesla made more money off of their Bitcoin uh, and lost more money off of their Bitcoin than they made with any of the, the cars that they sell, right? <laughs> so, I mean, that, it, it, it just, it paints this picture of, we still don't have rules in place yet that are appropriate for this asset class because it's so different, so fundamentally different. Nobody knows how to treat it yet. There are rules, they're just not optimized for it. Interesting. So if uh, if some of our listeners, uh, firstly, are mostly recovering accountants that have found their way into FP&A, um, thankfully for them. Um, so let's just unpack uh, a little bit because you, you talked about, um, as you started the conversation about ledgers. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm reasonably educated, um, but as I understand it, the blockchain is simply a, a ledger of who owns what uh, with with a value. Um, so as we think about FP&A teams, um, how should they be thinking about um, secondary? Like I think this is secondary to how you hold and manage cryptocurrency on your books. But secondarily, how should they be thinking about the future of the blockchain and the impact that it has on maybe the accounting side of a side of a finance organization? Yeah, I mean, it's such a it's such a profound question with a, a very extensive answer that I won't bore everyone with it, right? But but we can unpack certain pieces of that because I think it's it is really important to understand why this technology is going to change the world. Everybody says that about all technology. Oh, AI is going to change the world. You know, the internet is going to change the world. And those technologies do. But I feel like for, for blockchain and for cryptocurrencies uh, and other crypto assets, it's less understood because it's hard to understand just like the core concept for a lot mm -hmm. of people. So to unpack it, you know, what we'll start with Bitcoin because it's, it's the most, you know, easily accessible uh, example of this, but Bitcoin is essentially like like what you said. It's a database about uh, you know who owns what, right? And it's not really nobody owns Bitcoin. What it what you can do is uh, obtain the right to move Bitcoin. Uh, so the network is is basically a way for people to get permissions to move a certain amount, and in in and in that sense, you're able to move a certain amount of value, right? And this ledger that's available to everyone of all the Bitcoin that's out in circulation uh, and what wallets is in uh, is public. Anybody can see it. You can't see the names of the people, but because everyone has a copy of the same ledger, if someone were to try to spend or move some crypto, some Bitcoin that they didn't have the permission to move, then the network would reject that transaction because everyone in the network knows who owns that from an entity perspective, even though they don't know their name. Uh, and so this paves the way. One thing you'll notice about this is it's sort of it's pseudonymous. In some ways, it's, it's anonymous, right? Uh, but it's pseudonymous in the sense that even though you don't know who the other party is, you can transact with them in, in a way that if they meet the requirements, you don't need to know their name. You don't need to know who they are. Uh, and that creates sort of what you know, what is, is being termed as like a permissionless world, right? So if you, uh, as a, an accountant uh, or, you know, just in business in general, if you were to transact with another corporation uh, or another individual, uh, you, right now you need to know who that individual is to do it. You need to have trust 
you might need to go through like a vendor review process. And I'm not saying all of that is going to go away, but crypto sort of gets into this world of, uh, you know, where, where there's not a whole lot of work that you need to do to determine whether you could trust the party. Uh, mm -hmm. And so if I have, uh, for example, we, we'll use a, uh, a, a, uh, an instance that is near and dear to me. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm all about supply chain you mentioned earlier. Uh, but a good example of where this comes into play from an automation perspective. If I'm sourcing goods from one corporation to another corporation, there's a whole chain of events that happens in between corporation A and corporation B uh, related to logistics, related to the production of the goods, the sourcing of the materials, uh, everything all along the line. Today, there's no transparency into it. Uh, and there's also no understanding of what different entities are doing with those goods or any of the ancillary services associated mm -hmm. with them. What the blockchain is going to enable is basically the tracking where every step of the way, there's total visibility into what's going on with those goods uh, and, and also you know, where they're moving from, where they're going to, whether they met certain quality thresholds. That transparency uh, is going to be baked into corporations in the future. Right now you have your sort of ERP system where you're tracking all of this information, but it's your representation of that information. You're trusting that the other party uh, that's providing that data is providing correct data. But in a model where we have these networks of corporations, say take the semiconductor industry as an example. When the semiconductor industry is sharing data, right now there's this massive delay uh, in the, the time between when some corporation changes their, their demand plan or their supply plan and when the other corporations that are in the value chain, when they get that information, there's this bullwhip effect. Because there was that delay, you've either, either produced too much or too little. Uh, whereas with a blockchain-based infrastructure where there's, it's almost like a, a, a shared ledger uh, or a shared ERP between everyone, there's no delay there. Uh, so as things change, you're not overproducing or underproducing. You're more able to, to, to meet the demand in, in a very concise way. And that's going to create not just more efficiency, uh, but just in terms of, you know, the scale of things, economies are going to start to open up uh, and, and have a lot more by way of automation uh, around, you know, accounting for data, moving data, planning around it. And that's why I think it's, you know, related to the planning world. It's critical to understand how this is going to, to impact that because you need to be aligned with a world where you're sharing data uh, and kind of creating the rules around when that data gets shared rather than thinking about, well, who am I going to provision uh, you know, access to my spreadsheet to? Those days are numbered. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Uh, and And specifically as it then pertains around like <clears throat> as you think about uh, – entities like FPNA, uh, their job is to help uh, create strategies and plans for what the future may look like and help guide and navigate the business, right? And now if they have access to uh, a shared ledger, for example, the accuracy of their planning process uh, should therefore uh, increase drastically, yeah. right? Uh, and and therefore we get into a much more predictable uh, view. And then from the accounting perspective, we may be actually moving to a, a future and uh, who knows how governments will do this, where we just have a shared ledger and that is the accounting process, right? Rather than having to do complicated SEC reporting 
it could all be done on a shared ledger. Uh, it definitely could could get to that point. Um, and I think you're right in sort of highlighting that nobody knows how regulators are going to ultimately wind up approaching this. Uh, but it, it seems like there's a lot of steam sort of gathering. You know, we talked about the, you know, Bitcoin almost is like the gold proxy of the digital age. Uh, but there's this rising tide around the world uh, of governments looking at uh, using the same technology, the blockchain that, that Bitcoin runs on uh, to do, um, you know, something akin to what they've done with the fiat system, which is a, a, a central bank digital currency. And these central bank digital currencies are basically they're kind of like private ledger versions uh, of the Bitcoin network. Uh, although there, there are some issues from a security perspective, we don't need to get into that uh, versus Bitcoin because it's not as decentralized. Not everyone has a copy of the ledger. Not everyone can see what's happening. Uh, it, it's, it's actually, frankly, uh, it's a little bit more control than, than one would want to hand over, in my opinion. Uh, to, you know, completely over to the government because money is power, right? It's used to run everything. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it also lays the, the foundation for more automation around not just, you know, taxation, uh, but also around, you know, sort of uh, defining various entities and how they can interact with one another in a, in a legal and compliant way. Things that you couldn't codify before can now be codified. And, and to dig into that a little bit more, what I mean by that, and this is, this is very popular, for example, on the Ethereum blockchain, there are these things called smart contracts. And smart contracts are basically little snippets of code that you can write and publish to the network that act as almost like Lego pieces that anybody on the network can use, right? So if you can imagine a future where you can build these little, little snippets of code and, and build the, you know, put these building blocks, these Lego blocks together uh, to do anything, uh, you're winding up with, uh, you know, it, the, the world becomes much easier to navigate where you're able to put together a series of smart contracts uh, that determine, A, when a transaction can occur, how it should be accounted for, uh, which, which agencies or which entities need to receive reporting on that, uh, or anything else that needs to happen as a follow-on transaction. Uh, for example, if you're shipping a good, you know, what are the next things? Okay, well, we need to communicate that it needs to be picked up and all of those things, the entire chain, as you're able to build more of these rules and everyone's able to use them, there's less and less things that need to be built within each company, right? You just use the building blocks that are there. They're shared by the entire network. Uh, and so that that really lays this, this sort of foundation for an automated future where you're doing things once. Uh, and then everybody can use them and there's less and less sort of, you know, all the running around that in corporations now, so many of them run on spreadsheets uh, or, you know, planning software and the planning software isn't going to go away, but the data sources that it uses to, to then generate these insights and, and set up these follow on actions, it's going to be referring to those ledgers where all the smart contracts are actually facilitating the transactions themselves. Yeah, and and so therefore, as we said earlier, should therefore speed up and make the make the planning uh, process much more predictable. A, an interesting use case I just thought of there was something as simple as a as a mutual NDA, right? You could put a mutual NDA on on the Ethereum blockchain, and you know every SaaS company has a mutual NDA, and they all pretty much say the same thing with a couple of little variations. Well, now we can just all repurpose that same one, and no one has to go out and pay any more lawyers any more money. 
That's right. And actually, a really good example that I'm glad you brought that one up. DocuSign has been working on, uh, you know, basically contracts and legal documents on the Ethereum blockchain for some time because it is open source. I mean, you could go, Rowan, you could you could say, I want to create a smart contract. It's totally open in, in such a way that if you had a use case, you could build it and publish it to the network, fully auditable. So people know that it's 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 secure. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, you can really start at any point in the journey. Uh, the the smart contracts that are out there today, of course, there's some garbage ones because it's so open. Uh, <laughs> uses, right. But yeah. by, by that same token, I mean, you have massive corporations that are starting to build these rules from a smart, a smart contract perspective on the Ethereum blockchain. You even have banks that are using it for, you know, settlement. They're building smart contracts as well. Uh, and then you even have some governments. Uh, I think there's a, a European uh, European bank, not European Central Bank, uh, European Investment Bank, that's using it to issue bonds, uh, long-term bonds on the Ethereum blockchain. These things, this open source wave of technology, I mean, we sort of saw open source play out with like Linux and other you know computing architectures and everything, which is great. I mean, those communities have, have seen a lot of growth over the years. But this is the first wave of technology that by force is removing sort of the, the gauntlet of control from governments and, you know, like sort of centralized authorities. And it's distributing or decentralizing all of that to all the corporations and individuals that are participating. It creates a much more secure and robust system uh, that, you know, I think we're going to reap a lot of benefits from this. Uh, you know, over the next several decades. Uh, I think we could riff on that particular topic for a few more hours, I'm sure. Um, but let's come back to, uh, you know, our, our key audience here, finance professionals. And um, let's say someone CEO uh, comes to them and says, Dan, I want you to hold some crypto because I'm going to hedge against deflation. What do I need to go through? Like, obviously, I come to blockchain, and, and that's where I buy buy my crypto, or I go to my my, my bank, and they come to you. Uh, and but then, what's the impact on the on the company side? How how should uh, an FP&A leader or a finance leader be thinking about that particular challenge? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, aside from the accounting of it that that we were discussing earlier. Uh, there's there's a few aspects that you need to consider. So first, crypto today is classified as a digital commodity. It's property, right? It's not um, you know it's not like stocks where it's a security. Uh, it, it's it's a very liquid piece of property. Um, and so when you look at acquiring Bitcoin uh, and then subsequently selling it. You don't have the same rules that apply with like a security. If you were a stock, uh, you would need to worry about things like, uh, you know, what substitute products you would need to, to purchase if you were going to sell it and then try to buy it again later. There are no like wash rules in crypto right now, uh, which means you can sell it and buy it again uh, and realize the losses, uh, you know, the capital losses to offset your, your capital gains elsewhere, which obviously is, is of interest. Uh, depending on your business model. I mean, being able to offset capital gains is can, can be great, right? Especially with a volatile asset class, you might be able to realize a lot of benefit there because the, the price drops, you know, you, you buy at the peak, price drops, that might not be a bad thing for you. 
because it's going to ri probably rise again later, right? So you might want to carry those losses for it. So that's kind of one thing to, to consider. But acquiring it just out of the gate is kind of a, you know, it's something that uh, you need to approach the right way. And so if, if I'm a corporation that's looking to buy some Bitcoin, we'll use that example again. I need to consider whether I'm going to custody that Bitcoin as a corporation and manage my own wallet and who's going to do that internally. Or am I going to go to another service uh, like a, you know, a Gemini or a Coinbase or, you know, a Kraken or, or any of them. And if I'm going to buy it through them and custody through them uh, where they're holding onto the assets and they're responsible for it, uh, or am I going to, to utilize some sort of kind of multi-signature process where, you know, I'm custodying it, but it also requires some other entity to authorize the transaction, uh, you know, for a movement of funds. Uh, so that the custody issue is one that really needs to be well understood because there is no reversing crypto transactions, right? So if someone who's not authorized to move the money somehow got a hold of, of the keys necessary uh, to send a transaction, broadcast a transaction, once it happens, it's happened. Uh, you, yeah. you can't go back. Uh, and so the, the controls and the protocols around it are very important. That's why, you know, sort of third party custodians like Gemini and Coinbase and, and other entities like that, uh, that's why they're so popular is because even though you can, for the first time in history, self custody assets, people still want a party that is accountable at the end of the day in case something goes wrong. Uh, and, and so, you know, you get this sort of bifurcation uh, based on whether you're an idealist or not. You do have some companies that are custodying their own crypto assets because they know what they're doing and, you know, they, they feel comfortable with it. They got the right process and approvals in place. Uh, but the majority of these companies that are holding crypto on their balance sheet, they're holding them in a custodial account somewhere else. And they've got all the services around, you know, recovery uh, or insurance is a big one. You know, if you're self-custodying mm -hmm. your own crypto, no insurance. Right. Uh, so. I mean, there's there's those considerations. Then the last thing I would say is like, you know, you want to size it correctly. If you're if you're a, a CFO and you're considering putting Bitcoin on your balance sheet, I mean, it's a hedge against inflation, but at the same time, it is very volatile, right? So you don't want to to put you know a huge amount of what would normally be cash reserves in there. It is liquid just as cash is, uh, and can be. I mean, in a lot of cases, you could use it to pay for things, but if you were to use Bitcoin as sort of your uh, your currency, uh, you're you're looking at paying the capital gains on the assets that you're using to purchase with. So if I were to buy a cup of coffee with Bitcoin, aside from being an expensive cup of coffee, uh, <laughs> it's, it, you know it, it's really going to be not ideal in the sense that I need to pay the capital gains in addition to the amount that the cup of coffee costs. So it's still not ideal for that use case to, to kind of keep in reserves and use to pay for things. Really just, you know, that store of value and hedge against inflation. So, so you really have to pick your use case, whether you're going to be using it as a, as a replacement to something like gold, which is just a value store, versus a currency that you're going to transact with, for example. That's, that's right. And, and it, it, you, you can pick between them. Uh, it, there are use cases where you know on the, on the payment side or on the transfer of value side if i'm a corporation that needs to move 30 billion dollars think about trying to move that amount of money through the legacy you know sort of the banking system swift system that we've got today you would be paying an arm and a leg 
move $30 billion, you're paying an enormous amount of money that's cutting out of, you know, that transferred amount uh, in the Bitcoin network. I mean, it's, it's staggering when you think about how much more efficient it is. If you're moving $30 billion, you're paying maybe like a, a thousand or $2,000 in fees. Out of that total amount, you can move enormous amounts of money on the Bitcoin network because the cost to move it doesn't scale with the amount of money. They're not taking a cut. You know, the Bitcoin network isn't people. It's not a business. It yeah. runs in a programmatic way. So if you want to move money, it doesn't really matter how much money you're trying to move. It's going to facilitate that transaction the most efficient way possible. And so if, if I'm a large corporation, especially financial services corporations uh, that have remittances to worry about, large remittances, in a lot of cases, if I didn't have to worry about that, you know, the capital gains issue and paying for things, it would be the ideal network. And that's why you see central bank digital currencies picking up some steam is because it's so efficient and so much better than what we've got with our current system that it's attractive in nearly every way. It's also instantaneous settlement. Uh, so that what would normally be spent with like money and transit, uh, you know, if you were to, a lot of people don't know this, but if you were to send money to, 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 to uh, you know, South America, for example, through Western Union, there's a lot of pre-funding going on. The money itself isn't moving. It's sort of like an IOU between these different organizations. With crypto, it's the first time in history that the actual value is moving. Uh, and so there's, you know, there's, there's, there's just a whole lot behind it, a whole lot of efficiencies, uh, both from a business perspective, but just also on the FP&A side of things, uh, the, why it would be attractive to, to CFOs, uh, in addition to, to, to everything I named, but also from a working capital perspective, because it's, it's not in process, the settlement is instant. Yeah, which would really change the cash flow forecasting of your business, right? Uh, you know, think about your your DPO uh, days payable outstanding, right? Uh, that would be an interesting change for a business as you can instantly move money around between organizations. Right. So, so all right, we've talked about what reason you would have to to kind of hold crypto and we've talked about some of the use cases there we, we've talked a little bit about um potentially the future of blockchain as it uh pertains to finance and accounting professionals where we may have access to these shared ledgers of uh ways of getting instantaneous information across networks whether that's you know partnerships or whether that's uh you know supply chain um, organizations as part of our kind of value chain. We've also talked a little bit about how do you hold and manage and kind of what can you do with it? Um, what about, um, the future, right? Like what's next for an organization? Um, and, and maybe you can hypothesize on what you think, you know, people like, uh, DocuSign are going to do, or, or, you know, what do you think Tesla and, and MicroStrategy will do? Because they're two very different use cases of crypto, right? One's a value store and the other's actually using that to create value for, for, for an economy or for, for um, vendors, in, in fact, customers. Yeah, you know, I think the, the companies that are holding Bitcoin, on, uh, Bitcoin or, or crypto on their balance sheet, I think right now, they, they're definitely setting themselves up for, you know, in the case of a substantial inflation, which, by the way, I think that over the last year is 5.4 percent, which is more than double what the, you know, what the target was, roughly two, two and a half percent. So it's, it's clearly, you know, by all measures so far, it's not transitory. It's been getting worse since we, we've been in the, the, the gold standard. 
uh, all those years ago in the 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, but at, at the, the end of the day, those companies are setting themselves up well from a, you know, in terms of capitalization and then also just, you know, ensuring that their, their wealth or their cash stores aren't dwindling. I think the, the future from a crypto perspective isn't just with Bitcoin uh, or Ethereum or any of the assets that are out there today. I think they're sort of the tip of the iceberg. The rest of the iceberg uh, is in other, you know, sort of other projects in what's called tokenization. Uh, so a good example of that, and a lot of people have heard of this, uh, there's something called a non-fungible token. And a non-fungible token, there was a famous one that was sold. I think it was the most, the third most expensive artwork ever sold, uh, or uh, you know, in history by a living artist. Uh, it was a, an artist by the name of Beeple, uh, and Beeple sold uh, an artwork that was verified. The ownership of it, the title of the artwork, lived on the Ethereum blockchain, and it was sold for sixty-nine million dollars. Uh, and then the the uh, Metacoven, the the uh, the um, you know the the fund administrator basically. Uh, on the other side that bought that artwork, then tokenized it. It turned it into something that they could sell shares of. Uh, and so the reason that I'm, I'm emphasizing this, this world of tokenization is because the title or the deed to the building that you're working in, uh, the, the, the title of your home, uh, the, uh, the, the, the ownership of the assets, the property rights of anything in the world, whether tangible or intangible, intellectual property from a licensing perspective. If you're, you're letting other corporations license your technology, they can buy shares of that intellectual property, what was essentially you know, tokens of that intellectual property that represent their right to then you know, reproduce or use that technology in, in their value chain. This concept of tokenization and having uh, this digital representation that is clearly verifiable of any good or service uh, or, or asset, uh, that's going to be the new standard of how things are accounted for. If you want to buy a piece of property or some kind of equipment, uh, and you know you need to, you know you you need to uh, account for it over a series of of years in terms of depreciation or whatever, uh, all of that stuff can be baked into uh, the the structure and the tokenomics of these tokens. But having that digital representation opens up this entire world for your books to contain everything, not just the thing, you know, you're not going to be lumping things uh, into, you know, a line item that just says, you know, miscellaneous or, or whatever, or trying to have your own representation of it. It turns all of your assets uh, and, and all of your services into essentially more liquid representations of themselves. Uh, and it, on the other side of it, uh, there's a company by the name of T-Zero. And T zero uh, is is the first company to start offering a marketplace for essentially purchasing uh, private securities, right? Where they're fully liquid. So if you wanted to buy, uh, you know, a portion of the cap table uh, for this, you know, thirty million dollar company over here that hasn't gone public, uh, but you know it's it's very promising, or you want to enter into some kind of partnership of the, with them through through that equity equity stake, those things are going to be possible. You're not going to need to worry about a company going public anymore. You could purchase a, a portion of their assets. It just opens up the entire world, uh, whether it's private, public, everything becomes much more liquid uh, and uh, um, uh, transparent. 
So that's a, uh, for some, that's a scary proposition, right? Uh, for, for the world of accounting, uh, for the world of finance, uh, we've always had these categorizations and these ways of doing things. What do you perceive to be the main advantages for, uh, for, for a finance professional in that new world, right? Uh, and, and, you know, I, I won't ask you how far away that, that is because um, whatever you say will be wrong. Uh, and <laughs> so I won't, I won't that, put that on the record. Um, but, but what do you see as the advantages for finance professionals as that tokenized world comes into play? Yeah, you know, I, I think... We're, we're coming to a, con, a, a, a convergence of technologies, more or less, which is for most industries, uh, historically, uh, you, you didn't really have the need for technical expertise. Tools were built for individuals uh, were, were not technical, they weren't programmers or anything right now. In this tokenized world right now is very reliant on programmers and engineers, right? Uh, so all the use cases are sort of centered around what they think is cool or what they think is useful uh, in value add. But what I would say for finance and accounting professionals right now is that there's this attractive notion of thinking about how they would uh, build the rules around the tokenized future. Like this right now is the opportunity to actually contribute to building out the rules. And you know, accounting and finance, very rules-based, right? I guess you could argue that finance is a little bit more of an art and accounting, you know, a little bit more of a, you know, science. Uh, but at the end of the day, there's going to be, just like any other industry that's affected by automation, there's a period of time where there's an opportunity for those professionals to be a part of the solution. And then after that, you've kind of missed that bus and your services become commoditized and really the only corporations that are utilizing that service, uh, you know, of, of you doing things manually are ones that haven't made the migration to this new infrastructure. Now, you know, you asked about how long is it going to take a long time, you know, it's, it's not going to happen tomorrow and you're right. I, I would never be right with anything that I said, uh, <laughs> but, but it's, that's the operative phase of the opportunity we're in right now is you can be a part of, of the, the group that's creating the rules. Uh, rather than one of the ones that's trying to adapt to those rules after they've been created, right? Very interesting. Well, Dan, I, I think we could keep going on for hours, but uh, I want to be respectful of your time. So this has been an amazing conversation. Uh, for those folks that want to get in contact with you, uh, how should they do that? You can visit our, our website at um, www.blockchange.ai. Uh, or send an email to marketing at blockchange.ai. And, and just as a, a side note, we do have asset managers that utilize our platform that uh, purchase digital assets, Bitcoin or, or others, on behalf of corporations. It's, it's, it is certainly is something that you could do and you can do it today. Uh, so if you are interested, welcome the, the contact. Please reach out. Yeah, well, thanks, Dan. It's been a pleasure to have you on the Being Planful podcast. I learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners learned a lot. And I'm sure uh, there's lots to stew on as, uh, as this world fast emerges. Thanks so much for having me, Rowan. Make sure you hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for stopping by.